Welcome to the National Trust podcast. I'm Alan Power, head gardener at Stourhead, gardener, lover of nature, everything outdoors and generally curious mind. In this series, we'll be exploring the Trust's amazing spaces, delving into stories and characters that make each place so special. We'll be traveling all around the country, from hilltop to seaside. We'll tread sandy paths and the polished wooden floors of country homes, delight in bird songs, sublime views, and exceptionally good cream teas. So join me on this journey and immerse yourself in the wonders of the National Trust. Today I'm in Northern Ireland and I'm driving towards one of the most astonishing gardens in the UK, Mount Stuart. I'm about 13 miles east of Belfast, so not far away from the largest city in Northern Ireland. But what I can see out of my window in the car is worlds apart from the hustle and bustle of that busy city. On the right-hand side, this amazing lock appears called Strangford Lock. Now, Strangford Lock is an inland saltwater lake with a tiny, tiny exit point into the Irish Sea and the tide rushes in and out. I worked at Mount Stuart many, many years ago, so sitting in the car, I'm very excited to get to see the garden again. The garden here at Mount Stuart has been thriving ever since it was established by the rich and powerful Stuart family who made their money from selling fine fabrics like linen. They bought the estate originally in 1744. The property was passed into the care of the National Trust in the late 1950s. One of the characters we're going to hear a lot about today is Edith Lady Londonderry, whose imagination and passion shaped this place in the 1920s. In the late 19th century, she married the eldest son of the Stuart family, Charles Vane Tempest Stuart, and cemented her position as one of the most high-profile society women in Ireland. She brushed shoulders with the likes of Winston Churchill, Lady Astor and Harold Macmillan, and she was often the subject of a little bit of gossip and scandal in the newspapers. But away from the politics and the parties, Edith used the vast gardens at Mount Stuart as a place of peace, reflection and self-expression. Today, the gardens still bear the hallmarks of the design Edith started almost a hundred years ago. Wow, it's quite a dramatic entrance to the garden. You leave this massive expanse of water behind, huge, huge skies, and then all of a sudden you're utterly encompassed by an already unusual plant collection. I'm walking past kind of giant, Pittosporums, you know, they're they're huge plants that would normally just grow to 10 or 15 feet, but these are these are almost like trees. And I always kind of think of Mount Stuart as a little bit of a scratch and sniff garden. And a lot of Pittosporums have a lovely scent to it. And if you squash the leaf and smell it, it's a really lovely citrusy smell. The garden is a fanciful feast for the eyes, formerly clipped hedging laced with luxurious, colourful planting. It's astonishing. There's plants from all sorts of exotic climes, Brazil, Australia, Burma, just to name a few. And of course, proudly presiding over these spectacular gardens is Mount Stuart House, a grand affair 
It was Edith Lady Londonderry's family home in the early 20th century. And today, its doors are open to the public who are invited to enjoy its charm and splendor. Now, one of the first impressions you get of the garden at Mount Stewart is that there are very formal elements to it. So I'm meeting up with Lisa Louisa Robertson, who is a gardener in the formal garden at Mount Stewart, to learn a little bit more about it. Hi, Lisa. How Hi, are you Alan. doing? You all right? I'm fine. Yourself? Not too bad, thanks. Good. It's brilliant to think, you know, standing in a garden like this, surrounded by the amazing plants that we can see today, that you, know, you do have to start with research. You do have to start with getting the facts right and making sure that, I suppose, what you do as a gardener here is true to what Lady Edith did, you know, back in the 1920s and 30s. Yeah, I, I have to do it because what we do, we want to keep the garden close to what either have, have done. And I think that is quite nice for me as a gardener because I can walk in her shoes for a wee while. And that's what I like. I try to get into her thinking. So what would Edith has, has planted in here? So I, I can look in the books and see what she had in there. But mainly I have to work with the color scheme Edith left us. And of course it has to be exotic if it's possible. You have a lot of Southern Hemisphere plants here at Mount Stewart, don't you? Do you focus primarily on the Southern Hemisphere when you're looking for some of the plants for the garden? No, I focus on every plant. Every plant which would fit into the colour scheme and give me everything I wanted for this garden, like fragrance and height, it goes in. So try it. We have a lot of plants to play with. Why not playing with it? Lisa, we're very far north. What is so unique about the microclimate at Mount Stewart that allows you, as a gardener here, to play with the plants the way you do? We are here on the Arts Peninsula, so we are more or less enclosed with water. So we have at the south side, Strangford Lock, where we get, believe me or not, a lot of sunshine. Although this is island, you, island is always uh, regarded as a yeah, rain hole. Uh, we get a lot of sunshine here, and at the other side, we have the Irish Sea and the Gulf Stream. It makes it quite, quite nice and warm. But our uh, microclimate really comes from the shelter belt we have around here. You have to think about Mount Stewart as a big duvet, where the garden is sitting in the center. And this big duvet is lying over us, which are our trees around us. So I'm just about to catch up with Neil, the head gardener at Mount Stewart, and he's gonna tell me a little bit more about another compartment in the garden. Morning, Neil. How are you doing? Very good, thanks. Neil, we've only really got time to catch the tip of the iceberg today in a couple of the compartments at Mount Stewart, but could you give us an overview of the rest of the garden? Well, there are about seven formal compartments. Each one has a theme. We're in the Mary Garden, then on to the Italian Garden, uh, and then you go round to the west of the house with the sunk garden, which is all about scent and contrast of strong colours, blue, orange, and other hot colours like red and yellow. Uh, and then on to the shamrock garden, a garden which sort of expresses Edith's love of Irish and Scottish mythology. And then around the outsides of those are much more informal areas, like the peace garden, where all the family pets are buried, and then into Lily Wood, which was for her love of scented oriental lilies. She used to make potpourri out of these petals, so it was a great theme for her. And we're right into the Mary Garden. 
a very different feel and much less formal than the compartments that we've just seen. And right in the middle of this garden is an amazing statue of a young girl with bells and cockle shells dripping water into a fountain. And that is Lady Mary, Neil, isn't it? It is, yeah. In 1920, Edith suddenly found in the summer that she was pregnant, aged 41. And so this fifth and last child was very special to her because she just really moved to Mount Stuart and had invested in Mount Stuart, making it her principal home. So this was a real gift, you know, to have a young child. Um, it was also a slight reconciliation. She'd managed to get her husband, Charlie, away from his mistress in London, and it was a great triumph. But on top of that, there's a, a sort of Tudor rose, a stylized Tudor rose in the shape of the five tear-shaped beds. The, Edith was a suffragist. She believed that women should have the vote and a job and a career just like a man. By January 1915, Edith realized that the war, World War I, this is, wouldn't be over by Christmas. So it sort of galvanized her. And in early January, she started the Women's Legion, which for the first time initially got women into working on the land. But very soon after that, women were allowed into the armed services, working in the obvious things that those, in those days, things like the catering corps, the nursing corps. But soon women were doing a wide range of roles that men had previously done to allow men to get off to the front. So by the end of World War I, it's estimated about 80% of the work in Britain was being done by women that men had done previously. And the Women's Legion was just one of many organisations that used the crisis to sort of get women into the workplace. And, of course, by 1920, women over the age of 30 were given the vote for the first time. So she felt very proud that she'd pushed things along. But isn't it lovely that you've got Lady Mary, Edith's last youngest daughter, sitting in the middle of the emblem of the Women's Legion, sort of hope for the future, really. So it's a very optimistic garden. We try and use lozenges of blue, roughly blue and purple and white, maybe a bit of pink, not too fussy, and allow it to luxuriate. And as you can see, it does become a bit chunky towards the end of the season. And what we'll do, the soil is so poor every five years, we have to take it out and start again. We use chaos to give us changes each year, you know, by when things come and go, we just sort of um, basically plant it with us by the seat of our pants with new things and it looks like we've done something new. But this gives you this constant innovation. Edith was somebody who never went back to an idea once she'd put it in once, so it gives that impression that we're kind of gardening it the way she did. I grew up with a superstitious mother from Bandon in Cork and I know that Edith was quite superstitious as well and believed that there were certain things in the garden here that helped or hindered. Yeah, I mean, she, she wrote at times that she thought it was the, the seeth, the fairies, that were helping the plants to grow here at Mount Stuart, and by not cutting down the lovely hawthorns, the fairy trees in the domain, this had sort of, you know, kept things growing. And I don't think she really believed it 100%, but it, it was a lovely thing to write, very romantic thing. And then, you know, Mary herself, as a young child, is, is almost sort of elf-like, elfin child. So maybe, you know, on some level, she probably thought that Mary was a gift from the garden. Neil, we're standing on the Dodo Terrace and 
correct me if I'm wrong, but 1915 was the year that Edith, Lady Londonderry, was involved in founding the Ark Club. That's what was that all about? Yeah, that was in um, Jan end of January 1915, and she used the attics of their Park Lane house, Londonderry house, as a meeting place for the Honourable Order of the Rainbow. The idea of it was to raise morale in their coterie of political friends. Basically, there was good food, good drink, singing, dancing, you know, uh, poetry, just a laugh, really, to raise morale. And people were invited to join. They had to take on a rhyming appellation. So sort of uh, really famous people like Winston Churchill were Winnie the Warlock or Neville Chamberlain, Neville the Devil, Nancy Astor, Nancy the Gnat. Charlie, who was never very faithful to Edith, he was Charlie the Cheater over there. Um, and so, you know, it's kind of a bit of fun. And her own name in the art club was Circe the Sorceress, this rather naughty goddess. Just at the top of the steps on the Dollar Terrace, there is there is an ark with a couple of rabbits either side, and then it's fantastic from where we're standing, silhouettes of what look like dodos. Well, the dodos are a bit of fun, really, for Edith's father, Lord Chaplin, who wasn't, it's fair to say, the most dynamic MP in the world. So he was satirised as a dodo in 1903 by the Westminster Gazette. And so she's just poking fun at her father by putting the dodos on top. It's sort of in-joke, really. Now, from weird and wonderful animals to plant preservation, at Mount Stewart, plant propagator Alan Ryder is working hard to preserve some of the amazing plants here. So we're standing in the middle of one of the propagation units in the nursery at Mount Stewart. Alan is standing across from me and we're under this multicoloured light. It's almost like we're at a disco and the lights are whirring away in the background. Alan, what's going on? Well, we're just supplementing the light levels in here and um, this light you're looking at here, there's multi-spectrum, so it's, it's assisting the growth where the light levels are a little poor. There's all sorts of weird and wonderful things growing in here. You must have to apply some very strange propagation techniques and kind of encouragement for the plants and the seeds to take. What's the weirdest thing you've had to do recently? Well, we've grown a lot of plants from South Africa and um, to grow that, we're, we're having to replicate where the plant would grow. And um, plants in that area generally will, the dormancy, the inhibitors in the seed is broken by smoke. So the result of a, of a bushfire and the seed becomes uh, viable as a result. So what we're doing is we're, we're doing what they call smoke propagation. And we set up a little tin can and a little metal dish and we bubble smoke through some water to get the essence of the smoke in the water and then use that as a pre-soak for the seed and that is breaking the inhibitors in the seed. And uh, I think that's probably the weirdest thing. Um, so really it proves that, you know, propagation is all smoke and mirrors, you know. I mean, I'm standing here and I'm quite envious at some of the kit that you've got, you know, apart from these beautiful lights and the amount of greenhouses and polytunnels that you've got. We're, we're inventive. Um, the lights that are whirling away in the background we got from the local uh, police department. They were confiscated, shall we say, from a local uh, grower who was growing cannabis. 
And uh, this has been a really good source of material. The police are delighted about the fact that it's, it's stuff that was used for ill is now being used for good. And it's a good, it's a good story for, for everybody, really. This place truly is fascinating. From the mad science of the nursery, I'm now searching for something a little wilder and a little more unusual. I'm headed through the garden past the lake and I'm on my way to the Temple of the Winds. I'm getting to the top of the hill here uh, on this quite breezy day and this amazing view of the loch is slowly unfolding in front of me. I know exactly what's at the top of this hill and it's the Temple of the Winds, a beautiful, beautiful feature. But I'm hoping Andrew Upton is going to be there and he's the coast and countryside manager of this fantastic place. And how appropriate to be meeting Andrew at the Temple of the Winds on such a windy day. Hi Andrew, how are you doing? Hi Alan, all the best. It's a bit breezy up here today, why, why are we up here? And this is a very prominent location. So from here you can see vast swathes of Strangford Lock. Strangford Lock is internationally important for wildlife and uh, at any time of the year there's always something important to see out there. So during the winter, as you mentioned, you've got the light-bellied Brent geese, which breed in Arctic Canada. They then migrate through Greenland, through Iceland, and then in September, October, they arrive en masse on Strangford Lock. And we can have up to 90% of the global population on Strangford Lock. And most years you're talking about 25,000 birds, but some years we can have as many as 38,000 birds. And it really is one of the wildlife spectaculars uh, in Northern Ireland. And your job, yourself and your team, staff and volunteers, it, it's part of your job to look after their habitat, isn't it? Yeah, um, our job is twofold. One is to actually manage the habitats these birds either feed or breed in, but it's also to monitor their numbers. And only by doing that will we know whether the species are doing well, uh, whether they're struggling, and then we can adapt the management to hopefully bring the numbers back up. To really appreciate and get into all the nooks and crannies of Strangford Lock, you really need a boat. And I'm very fortunate, um, one of my pastimes is kayaking, and I get out and I really appreciate Strangford Lock. Um, we have a canoe trail on Strangford Lock, which uh, members of the public can really come and enjoy. There's various launch points around the lock. Do you have one outstanding memory or a few that when you've been out in your kayak on your own that you always reflect on and think that was a great day or a great moment? Yeah, I mean, what, one that stands out is uh, seeing the harbour porpoises just breaching very close to the, the, the boat. Andrew, I've never seen a harbour porpoise. You know, it must have been a real treat. Can you, can you describe for me what they look like? Porpoise is uh, part of the wider cetacean family and that includes uh, whales and dolphins. So porpoises are related to all those creatures. They're quite small. I mean, they're about the size of a seal and they've got very triangular fins. So they're very common around uh, the British Isles in uh, sort of inshore waters. So if you go to any part of the coast, you're likely to see porpoises, but they only come out of the water very briefly. So all you'll really see is sort of a dark gray creature with this sort of small triangular fin. One of the most important features of Strangford Lock is the islands. And uh, 
we have to graze those. If we don't graze them, they'll turn to woodland eventually. And this unique landscape that we have will quickly disappear. All the habitats and species that rely on those islands will vanish. What we've tried to do on Strangford is to actually learn from the people who manage the lock. So uh, the people who live and the communities that are around the lock, uh, there's so much to learn from them. They've been here for centuries. One of the things we've been doing, uh, particularly with some of the people who are getting on, is to actually do an oral history project to capture some of those stories and those traditions. So uh, there's like some of the people here would have remembered the days when they used to swim cattle out to the islands to graze. Nowadays, uh, National Trust has a boat, which we uh, transport animals out to the islands. But in those days, it was done much more sort of basic. But, and the whole community would have come out to help. So it's fantastic. You know, people remember sort of grannies coming out, children. Everyone helped with this activity. And we've sort of lost that. But what we need to do is just capture some of those stories. We're coming to the end of the day now, but the warmth and charm of the fabulous Mount Stewart House is beckoning me inside. So I'm off now to meet John Kerr, who's the property manager at Mount Stewart and has seen the property through this restoration. It's amazing to see what has been achieved in the house here. You know, I saw it 15 years ago, pre-restoration, and it's, it's a real treat. When I first started here at Mount Stewart, the house was in a very sad condition. It felt like the, it felt almost like the ghost of something once great. And I think what we have really captured now is the spirit of Lady Edith. What we set out to do was actually uh, create a house that she would recognize if she were restored to uh, full health and came back to Mount Stewart, she would feel absolutely at home. And I think that's what we've done. Talking of Edith, uh, there was one room in the house that was more important to Edith than any other, uh, her sitting room. And there you see the two desks, the one that she had her official correspondence sort of created on, and the desk that she created all of her plans from the gardens of Mount Stewart. So if you want to come with me, we'll... This is Lady Londonderry's sitting room. This was her inner sanctum. And th this is where all the most important things to her actually are, right? So on the wall, you see her youngest daughter, Lady Mary, and around her, the books that she drew inspiration for the amazing gardens at Mount Stewart. Her desk is just sitting in front of us and you can see family portraits. You can see little toys that the children have bought her as presents. And you can see her diary. And here in this little basket just to the right-hand side, you can see her garden diaries. And this is where she collected her inspirations and then created her, her amazing sort of uh, watercolours and plans for what the garden was going to be. You can really get a sense of what she was like just from the way everything's displayed. You know, hundreds and hundreds of little journals and books tied together with ribbon, organised. And there's shoes and walking sticks. And the most important thing in this room, I think, for me, John, is the fact that she can see the garden. Absolutely, and when she was here, every window would have been wide open. Uh, the other side of each of these wonderful windows in this amazing bay, which looks out onto the Italian garden, uh, there are little stone steps. Uh, and this, she talks about the garden rooms, uh, and, and what she meant is that this is not the end of the house. The house continues out into the garden, and vice versa, actually. There is, they are inseparable. Uh, to her, it was all just one part of this magical island of Mount Stewart that she created.
John, I'm going to ask you a big question now because I know how sensitive these environments are. Do you mind if I just sit at Lady Edith's desk for a minute? We've just had it restored, so it should be in good enough condition for you to sit in it. Absolutely. Be my guest. Now, I'm sitting in a little bit of silence, but it's quite, it's quite moving because I am surrounded by her personal artefacts. You know, I've been through her garden this morning, walked through the family home. I suppose the real thing that makes me tingle is the fact that her handwriting is right in front of me. And to have that kind of real tangible link to the woman who created this magnificent place is really, really moving. I wish I had longer here, but unfortunately that's it for me this season of the National Trust podcast. The next three main episodes will be about National Trust walks, and these will be presented by Kate Martin, one of our West Coast Rangers. I've really enjoyed taking you with me on my tour of some of the National Trust's most beautiful gardens and can't wait to do it again in season three. But for more information about Mount Stewart, you can visit their website at nationaltrust.org.uk forward slash Mount Stewart. For our next full episode, Kate will be in Kinder Scout in the Peak District. That episode will be available in a couple of weeks. But don't worry, there will be a mini episode available next week. We'll be exploring the power, poisons and pleasures of the colour purple through the incredible flowers at Mount Stewart. To make sure you never miss another episode, subscribe on iTunes or your chosen podcast app. And please do let us know what you thought of this episode or share your suggestions for future episodes on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram. You can also email us at podcasts at nationaltrust.org.uk. So from me, Alan Power, until next season, it's goodbye.